and the eensy weensy spider. And all of a sudden, the fuller brush man senses that there is somebody behind Stop. him. And can you tell me your story? Horses. <gasps> what did the horses do? Rain. We had lots of fun time walking the beach there and like touring the lighthouse. It's time for the apple seed, an hour that uses the power of great stories to help you make sense of the world and communicate with the people who are important to you. On the apple seed, great stories can change your family's world. I'm your host, Sam Payne. Welcome to the apple seed studio. Can you think of a time when you anticipated something exciting on the horizon, a longed-for vacation, a great new job you've interviewed for and hope you get? A lot of times it turns out exactly like you hoped it would. The vacation was perfect, you landed the job, everything's great. But other times, the thing you were looking forward to doesn't turn out like you thought it was going to at all. Think about young Ralphie. Remember Ralphie from the classic holiday movie, A Christmas Story? Keeps checking the mailbox to see if his coveted decoder pin from his favorite radio program, Little Orphan Annie, has arrived. And of course, at long last, the pin does arrive. And with great anticipation, he listens to the secret code being read over the radio. Remember... Annie is depending on you. Set your pins to B2. Here is the message. With steely determination, Ralphie spins the decoder pin back and forth, racing to uncover Annie's urgent and important message, and at last he cracks the code, and it's not exactly what he imagined. Be sure to drink your Ovaltine. Ovaltine? A crummy commercial? (laughs) And that's what we're talking about. It doesn't turn out like Ralphie hoped it would at all. And today on the show, we've got an hour of stories about that very thing. Anticipation and expectations and about things not exactly turning out how we expected they might, for better or for worse. we got a fun story from Los Angeles storyteller Antonio Sacre about the long road trip from his youth that included anticipation of a mysterious roadside attraction along the way. Dad, it's this thing where, like, you can go into a submarine and then they have scuba masks that come on you and you're out there scuba diving and then you can launch up onto the roller coaster and you go around the roller coaster and he's just going crazy with Pedro south of the border. (laughs) Antonio Sacre recorded live in the Appleseed studio. We'll bring you that story. And I'll bring you an entry in the Radio Family Journal about a time when I was asked for a favor from a family member that didn't turn out at all like I thought it would. So join us for that and also for an old-time radio adventure about a bunch of crooks that think they've got the perfect racket stealing from gangsters. But, of course, the scheme doesn't go as smoothly as they planned at all. It's a ripped-from-the-headlines story from 1948 called The Case of the Horse Race Hijackers. Let's get this straight. It doesn't make any difference who the victim is. Robbery is still robbery. And it's my job to clear it up. <laughs> An old-time radio adventure coming up later in the hour. And finally, we'll talk to the author of a book called A Boy Called Bat. And we'll hear from a family that made a surprising discovery when they read the book together. And she stopped and she said, wait, Jack has autism? Like huh. bat? And I said, yeah, he does. Like hmm. bat. And we'll have that conversation later on in the hour as well. But we'll begin with this Antonio Sacre story. It's called Pedro's South of the Border, recorded live in the Appleseed Performance Studio in front of our terrific live audience. They're waiting for us. Let's join them, shall we? My father comes from Cuba. He came from Havana, Cuba, and settled in Miami with all the other Cubans in Little Havana in Miami. Somehow he ended up in Boston, Massachusetts, where he met my Boston Irish-American mother, and the two got married. And so I am the son of a Cuban man and an Irish-American woman, or like one of my friends calls me, a leprechauno. <laughs> and uh, my, on my, I was born, and on my very first birthday, my mom gave birth to twins. 
So I've never had my own birthday. There's three of us. We all have the exact same birthday. And uh, I'm one year older. And, uh, and for a few years, it looked like we were triplets. And that's what my mom had to deal with. Well, we would get in the car in that Volari station wagon I'd mentioned earlier, and we would go on road trips. How many of you remember road trips? I was on a plane this morning, and there was a very fussy child who the mom was able to give an iPad to, and she was totally fine after that. And I was grateful for that technology. And I know that my mom would have done anything to have something like that to make us quiet back in the day. Because what would happen in our car rides is we would have to invent games to keep us occupied. And you may remember some of these games. We would leave Delaware, where we ended up living, and we would go seven hours north to the Boston Irish family. Seven hours with young kids in the car is a long time. And sometimes we would go the other direction. 19 hours in the car to Miami, Florida. Now, I am much older than some of you here and probably about as old as some other people here. When I was a kid, we had no iPads. We had no iPhones. We had no CD players. We didn't have a cassette player. We only had an AM radio in the car. I know you all know AM radios. Do you remember the old school AM radios with the red dial that you would turn and you would roll in on a station? You would have to tune it to the left, to the right, and you'd get a station for as long as the antenna lasted, which if you were traveling was sometimes 30 minutes, sometimes 60 minutes, and the station would fade, and you would have to literally go through silence on the radio. Can you imagine a kid today having nothing to listen to? How many millions of songs can they hear on their devices? Back then, there would literally be three stations on the radio and only one that we all could agree on. So the first half hour of the trip, we would settle in on that one station that made the three boys in the back and the two parents up front happy. Well, when that station started to fade, my mom had to invent games to play. We played iSpy. You've probably played iSpy. We started to play the license plate game. Do you remember the license plate game? Lots of different ways to play it. When we were younger, it was just recognizing the numbers and try to recognize them in order from one to nine and backwards from nine to one. And then when we got a little bit older, adding the numbers on the license plates. And as we got older, multiplying the numbers on the license plates and then the square roots of the numbers on the license plates. And then it became geography. Where is that state in relation to we are, west of here or north of here or south of here. On the East Coast, it was all of that. There was no states east of us. And, um, and then we would try to make up words from the letters on the license plates. And what was the capital of those states? Now, I don't know if kids play, is there an app for a license plate game now or are kids? Turns out, I've learned as I've been, been storytelling in schools the last 20 years or so, that when kids' eyes are scanning the horizon, this is pre-reading ability. So I spy is actually helping kids to read and picking out letters and numbers on license plates is the same thing. My mom was just trying to keep us quiet. So the license plate game worked for about another 30 minutes or so. And then we would get into the fields south of Delaware, the farm fields. I know we're in farm, there's farmland not too far from this big city for sure. And my mom invented, and you may know this game, maybe you don't, the counting cows game. <laughs> the way we played it was if you had cows on your side of the car and you could count them out loud, that was your score but only if you could count them before they were gone. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. My brother Robert on the right side. I've got seven. I'd be on the left. One, two, three, four, five, six. Ah, six, seven to six. Henry Hughes sat in the middle. He hated sitting in the middle. How many of you had to sit in the middle when you were younger? But the advantage of sitting in the middle is the kid who sat in the middle always won the counting cow game because he was allowed to count cows on both sides of the car. So the counting cow game worked for a while. And then if you saw a cow that was laying down, you added two. And then if you saw a goat, you added seven. And if you saw a sheep, you subtracted 14. And is that a sheep or a goat? I don't know. And a big discussion about sheeps and goats and another half hour of the 19-hour road trip was chewed up. And then my mom invented, I don't know if you have this variation, that if you passed a cemetery on your side of the car, all of your cows died. <laughs> But if you passed the church, they were resurrected. So you have to remember. So it was up and down and up and down. And the cow came, would eat up another hour in the car. And then three or four hours into the 19-hour road trip to Miami, Florida, my brother Robert asked the question that children have been asking since the beginning of time. Are we there yet? And my dad is driving. He looked in the rearview mirror and he says, no, mijo, we have like uh, 17 hours more left to go. 
Is that a long way? Sure, da my dad says, sure, it's a long way. We have to stop in a hotel tonight and another hotel tomorrow, and then we'll be at grandmother's house. My brother's looking out of the window, and he's very bored. And then he sees a sign, a billboard. It says, Pedro's south of the border, 900 miles. My brother says, Dad, did you see that sign? See, mijo, ya, ya lo vi. I saw that sign. What do you think Pedro's south of the border is? My dad says, I don't know, but we'll find out in 900 miles. <laughs> is that a long way, Dad? My dad could have said yes. If it was today, he would just Google, how long till we get to the Pedro's south of the border? But he turns it into a math problem. Mijo, we're traveling 70 miles an hour. When are we going to get to Pedro's south of the border? Go. And the three of us try to do this math problem. <laughs> it kept us quiet for 30 minutes. <laughs> dad, we'll probably get to Pedro's south of the border tomorrow around lunchtime. And then my dad sped up to 72 miles an hour. When are we going to get there now? Oh. <laughs> Another half an hour. Dad, we're going to get there like five minutes before lunchtime. And my dad sped up and slowed down and sped up until finally we were smart kids. Dad, you're just trying to trick us into doing math. Ho, ho, ho. So we're driving along. So finally, after we got bored of the math game, my brother finally said, Dad, what do you think Pedro south of the border is? And my dad did the magic thing. What do you think it is? And then he listened. And the three of us had a massive conversation about what it could be. My brother Henry said, maybe it's an amusement park, Dad. Maybe it's got a roller coaster and it's got bumper cars. And I say, maybe it's a big swimming pool. We all can go swimming. My brother Robert says, yeah, maybe it's an amusement park with a swimming pool and a great big trampoline park. And we can jump on the trampoline into the swimming pool and off of the diving board onto a roller coaster. And Robert's imagination <laughs> just starts going crazy. He's imagining this amazing wonderland, Pedro's south of the border. And then quiet in the car, another radio station, 20 or 30 minutes, maybe another farm playing the Counting Cows game, and then another billboard. Pedro south of the border, 815 miles. Dad, when are we going to get there? Do the math. We do the math again. We come to the same conclusion, tomorrow at lunchtime. <laughs> and each time my brother says, what do you think it is? And my dad says, what do you think it is? And we keep inventing more and more things. Finally, we say, what do you think it is, Mom? And my mom says, I think it's a spa where I can get a massage. <laughs> Dad, what do you think it is? I don't know, mijo, maybe it's a delicious restaurant. We can have beautiful food. And then four of us in the car get tired of what is Pedro south of the border going to be, except for my brother Robert. My brother Robert is inventing things that didn't even exist yet. Dad, it's a rocket ship that we can all go up into the sky and we can orbit the moon. Dad, it's this thing where like you can go into a submarine and then they have scuba masks that come on you and you're out there scuba diving and then you can launch up onto the roller coaster and you go around the roller coaster and he's just going crazy with Pedro south of the border. We stop at a hotel the next morning, billboard, Pedro south of the border, 200 miles. Robert says, Dad, go 200 miles an hour. We'll be there in one hour. My dad says, no, mijo, we're not doing that. Go faster than that. But finally, the miles are kicking off, and the last billboard says, Pedro's south of the border, two miles. And this, you can Google this now when you turn on your phones later on. It says, kids, start screaming now. Your parents will stop. <laughs> My dad says, no screaming. Well, of course we're going to stop. And then one part of the mystery was solved. Just south of the border of North Carolina and South Carolina is Pedro's south of the border. South of the border of North Carolina. And we get into South Carolina and we exit down this long dirt road. And we turn the corner into this huge, empty parking lot with this little taco stand in the corner. <laughs> and this rickety sign that says, Welcome to Pedro's Tacos. <laughs> and my brother Robert just... <laughs> it's a taco stand and he just starts sobbing that nine-year-old sobbing just snot everywhere he's just going to taco stand and my dad's trying to say well, well mijo you know it's lunchtime and I love tacos mom says I love tacos I said I love tacos Robert said I love tacos too but I hate Pedro I hate Pedro and there's nothing else so we get tacos and the tacos are delicious and we're eating the tacos but Robert just cries all the way through South Carolina all the way through Georgia, all the way into Florida. And there's a sign out there, and you're not going to believe this, but my dad is from Cuba. It said, Disney World, 20 miles. And my dad said, I wonder what Disney World is. And my brother says, it better be better than Pedro south of the border. <laughs> and we get to Disney World, and it is amazing. And Space Mountain is something my brother never forgot. My dad's screaming more than anybody. And we get off that roller coaster, and to this day, 
My brother denies that he ever cried that hard about Pedro south of the border because all he remembers is the roller coaster at Space Mountain. And every time we tell the story, it gets longer and longer, and he cries longer and longer. And finally, just another seven hours until we get to Abuela's house, my grandmother Mimi's house in Little Havana, and she's waiting. ¿Qué tal fue el viaje? How was the trip? My dad, fue un desastre. Era un Pedro south of the border que era no más que taco. Estaba ahí llorando, llorando. My brother, it's amazing, grandmother. We went on Space Mountain. It was so great. And we had that meal that I can think of every time the smell of it and the sound of the pressure cooker in the kitchen, the, the little hat dancing on the pot. And then we sit on the couch, all of us, because there's nothing on TV. Do you remember nothing on TV? Do you remember when it would turn to, to snow at midnight and the flag would come and that would be it? There's nothing on TV. It's too hot to go outside. My grandmother's sitting there looking at me and me looking at her. And every year I would sit there and I would ask her the same question. Abuela, ¿cuántos años tienes? How old are you? She'd say, ay, mijito. Nunca pregunta a una mujer cubana cuántos años tiene. Never ask an old Cuban lady how old she is. But grandmother, how old are you really? Bueno, mijito, yo tengo 15 años. I'm 15 years old. Abuela, no puede ser. You can't be 15. I'm almost 15. How is it possible that you are younger than my dad? She said, es un milagro. It's a miracle. <laughs> Abuela, it's not a miracle. How old are you? Bueno, mijito, yo tengo 16 años. And she would go through each age, one over the other, all the way up. I would ask this. It was just nothing else to do but play this game. How old are you really? I'm 16. How old are you really? I'm 17. And we kept going and climbing through the ages until she got into the 60s and the 70s. 75 years old, abuela. Que vieja. Si, mijito. Yo soy vieja. I'm old. You're the oldest person I've ever met. Si, mijito. Yo soy muy vieja. I've never met anybody. Ah, ya, ya, mijo. Está bien. No te preocupes. <laughs> I know I'm old, it's okay. She said, Yo soy tan vieja que yo tengo una pata en la tierra en otro en cascarón de plátano. She said, I'm so old, I've got a foot in the grave and another on a banana peel. <laughs> She said, I could slip and die any minute. Abuela, that's not funny. No, mijito. Es parte de la vida. It's part of life. We all get old, we all die. Abuela, I don't like this talk. No, mijito, es posible que cualquier momento yo puedo... <laughs> And her face goes silent, and she holds her breath, but I can see her breathing, but her face is so old and wrinkly, she looks dead. Abuela, I see you breathing. <laughs> Abuela, that's not funny. And one tiny part of my 12 or 11-year-old brain said, Abuela, te moriste? Did you just die? And without moving her lips, she says, Si. <laughs> Then how are you speaking? Es un milagro. It's a miracle. And we would play that game over and over and over again. And in that living room was the beginning of my storytelling career. I told you this earlier, Sam. I wish I journaled more of those moments because some of those moments I journaled and some of those stories I turned into picture books and stories that I tell on the circuit. And some of those memories are gone. And when my family gets together, we tell those stories of those trips down to that house, past those places. Pedro South of the Border now is a huge, amazing thing with roller coasters and all kinds of things. And my grandmother's house is still there, but all of those old people died old and peacefully. And now all we have are their memories. Antonio Sacre with Pedro's South of the Border, recorded live in the Appleseed studio. You know, that stop at Pedro's South of the Border may have been a bust by some measurements, but by the end of the trip, the memories of Space Mountain and counting cows and visiting Abuela more than made up for it. And, of course, they have a great story that their family has been telling ever since. That's sometimes the way it is with stuff that doesn't turn out the way you thought it would. In just a moment, a little talk back with friends about Antonio's story, as well as an old-time radio adventure with some cops cracking down on a horse race betting scheme, and a lot more. You won't want to miss a word. I'm Sam Payne.
a moment ago, it was our pleasure in the Appleseed Performance Studio to hear the great storyteller Antonio Sacre with that tale, Pedro's South of the Border. A pleasure to hear that story and a pleasure to be joined around the desk by a couple of members of our Appleseed family. Trent Horton, one of our assistant producers. Trent, it's great to have you with me. Yeah, it's always good to be here. And our senior producer, Brian Tanner. Brian, glad to have you with me. Hey, it's always fun. And let's talk about that story. I mean, there are so many um, sorts of memories that might be brought on by a story like this. Road trip memories and family memories and, and again, roadside attractions that you thought were going to be one way and, and turned out another way, you know. But where does this story take you? Trent? Yeah, so I love the part where he tells them that to, to do math in the car and it takes them a half an hour and they're all excited to do it. I remember the first time I took like a basic physics class and where I could actually use math to predict things. Like we could roll a ball down a thing and predict exactly where it was going to land with math. And I was like, my mind was blown. (laughs) And I was like, this is so cool. When you actually get to use math in real life, it's actually kind of fun. You had an experience with physics. Mm -hmm. In my life, that was music theory. I took a music theory class. And when I started to realize how much music theory was like math, it made me like math a whole lot more. Yeah. Yeah. How about you, Brian? Well, I should say my wife is a math teacher and she would appreciate those comments. (laughs) (laughs) She will contend that that math can be taught in a fun way and an applicable way. Um, So when I was thinking about this story, you know, I haven't driven – uh, through South Carolina on the route they were talking about to see Pedro south of the border. But I have driven all the way across South Dakota. And I feel like <laughs> South Dakota, of all the places I've ever been in the United States, is has to be like the tourist trap capital of the world. <laughs> you know, when you're coming along I-90, you, you see these signs well in advance for Cosmos Mystery Area and for the Corn Palace and sure. for— Probably foremost among them, wall drug. Wall drug. For hundreds of miles, you see those Hundreds of miles. And so you've just got to stop. You know, your curiosity is absolutely, you know, at a maximum level. You know, they're like, there's this, but they don't tell you what this is. So you have to go to find out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a, a great pleasure to hear Antonio's story, Pedro's South of the Border, and fun to chat about it for a moment about things that didn't turn out exactly as we thought they would when we went in. I've got a memory about an instance when uh, a favor for a family member turned out a little bit differently than I thought it would. It's today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. I remember the phone call. Hey guys, this is Kathy. I wonder if you'd be willing to take a friend of mine out to see Zion National Park over the next couple of days. She's from Israel and she's ready to hop on a bus for Southern Utah this afternoon. Well, Kathy was family and we agreed. We lived near Zion National Park in those days. Our jaws were set, our teeth were clenched, but we agreed. It wouldn't have been much of a problem any other week, but this week we had concerts to do and soccer games one after another, church stuff up to our eyeballs, and school projects to finish. In retrospect, it's tough to bring to the memory of that week the panic that we already felt at how on earth we were going to make it through And then to add the obligation of hosting a friend, not even our friend, but the friend of a family member, chauffeuring her through two days of national parking. Well, forgive us, but we were cursing Kathy's name under our breaths. And the curses grew ever more ardent as we learned that this was not even a dear old friend of Kathy's, but a girl she had met on the street outside a Salt Lake City art gallery only moments before she called us, an almost perfect stranger. And so it was that with painted-on pleasantness, we went downtown to fetch the girl from an evening Greyhound bus. And she got off the bus, Reut Shmueli, who had been touring the United States with a backpack on her back. 
and still fuming under a carefully managed sheen of social propriety, we loaded her things into the car and began to drive home. And that's when it began to happen, I think. The fake pleasantness lasted about 40 seconds and then gave quickly away to genuine affection and then within the half hour to deep and abiding friendship. She stayed with us in the end for six days instead of two. She came to concerts, hiked canyons. She asked us to tell her about our faith tradition, the way we worshiped. That part of our conversation came as we were hiking through Zion National Park. Reut, as you can imagine, wanted to know how the park got its name. The word Zion, after all, held a special place in Reut's faith tradition. Well, there were late-night talks and family excursions, and when she did leave us finally, it was with tears and embraces and promises to see each other again. On our coffee table today sits a book about Israel sent to us by her parents. Reut's trip took her to other places after she left our house. She went to the Grand Canyon. She stayed for a few nights in Las Vegas. And when she got lost and became frightened in that maze of lights and casinos and restaurants, she took out her phone and called us, her friends. We talked her through it, and by the end of the night, she was safely back at her hostel, and we were even more inextricably linked together. A year later, Reut's dad took a research job in Washington, D.C., and we went out to visit. We met her parents, Moshe and Siona, and her sister, Ronit. They took us to a dance class at their local synagogue, and sometime later, they visited us in the West. We went to Bryce Canyon National Park together. We hiked and talked about the Torah. They, too, Reut's parents, were interested in how we believed and worshipped. We swapped our ideas about favorite characters from the Bible, and we did it all in the spectacular landscape of one of the most remarkable national parks in the country. And they taught us to celebrate Rosh Hashanah, and we ate pomegranates together, picked from our backyard. We didn't see each other for a long time after that, but our affection for each other was deep and abiding. Just a year or two ago, I had the chance to visit Israel, and when I touched down in Tel Aviv, I called the only people I knew in the whole country, Reut's family. They came on a bus from where they lived and brought gifts of honey and CDs of pop music from Israel. We embraced and talked and laughed together like we'd never been apart. Reut, our old friend, was living in Berlin these days, but her parents sent their love. I wonder sometimes where all that grumpy indignance went on the day before Reut came to visit us, the day of Kathy's call. But it's not much of a mystery, really. It's as simple as this, I suppose. It's easy to be angry at circumstances, easy to get disgruntled at situations, but at the heart of situations and circumstances are people. People with hang-ups and abilities and things they need and things that they can give. People who have had a hard day at work or who are tired of doing the dishes or who climb down from Greyhound buses full of hope and anxiety and who don't speak the language well. And while it's easy to offer ultimatums to a mute set of circumstances, it's tougher when you can see and shake hands with and buy a milkshake for the people down at the center of the circumstances. It was easy to brush Reut off when she was nothing but an abstract inconvenience, an obstacle to our getting things done that week. But then she materialized, became a real person. And in the face of that, it was simply easier to be friends. Impossible, in fact, to be anything else. Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. 
That memory, of course, is about a relationship that turned out differently than I thought it might. Have you ever had one of those? It's probably worth remembering. It's probably a story worth telling. And that kind of storytelling around the kitchen table or the living room can make for memories that last a lifetime. We always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show can spark memories for you that you can share with those people that you love. It's been a pleasure to chat about Pedro's South of the Border, that Antonio Sacre story, with Trent Horton and Brian Tanner. Guys, such a pleasure to have you with me. Yeah, I love being here, Sam. Yeah, thanks for asking us on. There's a lot more coming up. You're going to hear an old-time radio show about a horse race gambling scheme that you won't want to miss. It's coming up on The Appleseed. It's such a pleasure to have you with us on The Appleseed, an hour dedicated to using the power of great stories to help you make sense of the world and connect with the people who are important to you. And in this episode, we're thinking about experiences that don't play out exactly as we expected or hoped. And, of course, some of the surprising things that happen as a result of some of those things. Let's now take a trip back in time, shall we, for an old-time radio adventure about a gang of crooks who think they've stumbled on a foolproof scheme, but it doesn't play out as smoothly as they planned. These days, true crime podcasts are all the rage, or seem to be. Stories of actual cases spun out in gripping detail to take with you on your mobile device. But true crime audio stories spiced up with plenty of drama for the public aren't new. Take Gangbusters, for instance. Gangbusters was a radio show that ran for more than 20 years, beginning way back in 1936. And when it stopped broadcasting on the radio, there were TV shows, comic books, even a couple of Gangbusters movies. But in the radio days, every week, true action-adventure fans would gather for the latest episode of Gangbusters and its dramatic opening whistle. And now, in cooperation with police and federal law enforcement departments throughout the United States, the only national program that brings you authentic police case histories. That's what Gangbusters was all about. True case histories from police departments all over the country, presented in dramatic fashion with actors and sound effects and all the rest. And that opening whistle, in later episodes of Gangbusters, that whistle would be followed by the sound of car tires screeching and sirens wailing, even machine guns rat-a-tat-tatting away. And those dramatic openings gave rise to a kind of catchphrase that people came to use when something happened dramatic clear with a lot of fanfare. They'd say it came on like gangbusters. Ever heard that phrase? Like gangbusters? That's where it comes from, from the radio show. Anyway, after the police whistle, another voice would announce today's case. Tonight, the case of the horse race hijackers who found a bulletproof racket to rob Peter without paying Paul, but who learned too late that the law itself is bulletproof. Yeah, more whistles. And that's how an episode of Gangbusters would get started. And this episode is all about an illegal horse race betting operation. A couple of hijackers who rob the illegal horse race betting operation of its ill-gotten gains and the stalwart Lieutenant Frank O'Rourke, who tries to put things right. And just like any episode of Gangbusters, this one begins with the host, Don Gardner, asking Police Commissioner O'Sullivan to tell him a little bit about the case. Police Commissioner O'Sullivan, by the way, is not really Police Commissioner O'Sullivan. He's played by an actor named Robert Dryden. Here he is. Well, Don, I think it'd be best to start last summer. On a side street in the busy Flatbush section of Brooklyn, there was a small delicatessen store. Well, the guy who runs this delicatessen is Gus. He's the little guy in an illegal horse race betting operation. In addition to selling deli goods, Gus takes the calls from gamblers who want to bet on races, sorts the money out when the race is over, and hands it off to Rico, the tough guy mobster who hands it off to his boss. In fact, as we meet deli owner Gus, he's taking a call about a bet while Rico waits by the counter. Yeah, Mrs. Dendrick. Uh, look, Gus, I'll tell you what I want. Yeah? Uh, give me two to win and two to show on Pelican in the fourth at Jamaica. Pelican 202. Yeah. Anything else, Mrs. Dendrick? Yeah, throw in a two-buck bet for me on the blue and gold entry in the seventh, will you? 
I got it. Okay. Right. I'll talk to you tomorrow, Gus. Okay. Ah, uh, here you go. Better I should stick to the delicatessen business. This taking bets on the ponies is getting down my nerves. You're going to complain, Gus. You get all the gravy and none of the risk. All of the gravy and none of the risk, says Rico. But just at that moment, two guys walk into the deli. And it's not Reuben sandwiches they're looking for. Uh, take a look at whatever you put in your pocket. You got no right to look at anything. Please, gentlemen, my store... Shut up, I... you. You're in enough trouble already. Uh, yeah, yeah. Come on, hand it over. You'll need a warrant, copper. Copper? Do we look like cops? Hey, what is this? What's it look like? It's a heist. Get what's on him, pal. Now, look, you guys, you're going to get in trouble. Don't move, Rico. Please, my... That's st- enough out of you, too. Here we are, boss, all his collections. Well, let's go. What about the cash register? Oh, no. Forget it. It's not in our line. But boy- Forget it. Right. Don't either of you move for five minutes. Remember. Come on. Along, boys. Whoever those two guys are, they made off with the illegal horse betting money. As you can imagine, that doesn't sit well with poor Gus or with tough guy Rico. But then Rico heads off to tell his boss, the head of the horse betting racket. They call him a bookmaker or a bookie. And the boss's name is Gray. And when we meet Gray, we learn that it's not the first time this has happened. Those hijackers have hit all the illegal betting places in town. And Gray wonders what to do and leans on Stella, his girlfriend for advice. Look, there must be a dozen bookmakers like you losing a bundle of dough every week. So? So? So why don't you all get together? You know, e pluribus unum. With those chumps? Hey. Or didn't you ever hear of a trade association where all the competitors get together for the mutual benefit of the industry? Yeah, maybe between us we can round up enough heats to scare those hijackers off. Yeah. Think I'll call Burley and the Gimp. This is something they ought to be real glad to hear. (laughs) Can you believe the names? Gray is going to call Burley and the Gimp. And he does. And Gray and Burley and the Gimp send out their thugs, gorillas they call them, to see if they can't scare out the hijackers and show them a thing or two. No one wants an all-out war between all these crooks, not on the streets. So the dashing Lieutenant Frank O'Rourke of the New York police brings Gray in for a few questions. Hello, Gray. Been fixing any fights lately? Well, it's about time somebody showed up. Open up, Sergeant. All right. So, you're getting smart and turning me out, huh? Or did my lawyer show up with a writ already? Neither, Gray. I'm just coming in for a little chat. Now, oh, wait a minute. Look, I can't make no statement about the hijackings. That'd be cutting my own throat. You got me in the middle. I think you got yourself in the middle, Gray. Give me a... Give me a little time to think it over, will you? How much time? A uh, couple of days, that's all. Okay, I'll give you a couple of days. But in the meantime, you call off those hoodlums. I don't want any more shooting scrapes. Yeah, yeah, sure. And get Burley and the Gimp to do the same. Or they know what to expect. Okay, Lieutenant, okay, the gorillas are through. And today. So long. Hey, I thought I was getting out. When your lawyer gets here with a writ, not before. We'll be seeing you. Well, that's a fine way to treat a guy. I'm an American citizen, you know. I get some rights even if I am I never see anything like this anywhere. Well, Gray does call off his thugs, and so do Burley and the Gimp. And with the thugs off the streets, the two hijackers, their names are Kale and Luke, get together in a seedy little joint to get their hijacking plans back on track. Hello, Kale. Sit down, Luke. Well, it's like you figured. They all got rid of the gorillas. You sure? Would I be telling you if I wasn't? Tell that Rico guy all day there was nobody with him. The same goes for the others. Good. We get back to work. And we'll take more of them over now than ever. You know something, Luke? What? Don't tell anybody. We're the only guys that ever beat the bookies. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And when you got a sure thing, press it. That's exactly what we're going to do. So the hijackers get back to work. After all, Grays, Burleys, and the Gimps' thugs are nowhere to be seen. But following Kale and Luke in the shadows is none other than Lieutenant O'Rourke and his faithful sergeant. And just as Kale and Luke make their move to rob more ill-gotten betting dough, the lawmen chase the hijackers into a dark alley. Of course it's a dark alley, right? All right, you men. Come out of there with your hands up. Come out of there right now. Not me, Cobra. Watch it. Stick here, Sergeant. Where are you going? 
There's that loading platform across the way. I should be able to see him from behind that. And O'Rourke, in the dark, sneaks over to the loading platform to get a better view and to get the drop on the crooks. It's a treacherous action-adventure moment, and when O'Rourke is safely on the platform, the sergeant shouts to check on him. You okay, Lieutenant? Fine. Come out of there, you men. We're coming out, don't choke. All right, come out with your hands in the air. All of you. Watch him, Lieutenant. Just keep walking. We're through. We're all through. That's far enough. Keep your hands up, you. They're up. And with that, Kale and Luke, the hijackers, are marched on down to jail. Well, they're a fine-looking bunch, eh, Lieutenant? Look, we didn't do nothing wrong. We only took from the gamblers. They're criminals. We didn't do nothing wrong. You're a little bit twisted, fellow. You're all wrong. That doesn't make the bookies right. And if it's any satisfaction to you, we'll get them, too. Now, uh, let's go. And an episode of Gangbusters comes to an end where it began, with a wrap-up given across the desk to host Don Gardner by actor Robert Dryden, playing police commissioner O'Sullivan. So, Don, the hijack gang was broken up, and its members were sent to the penitentiary for long terms. I'm sorry I can't say the same for the big-time gamblers whose money runners they robbed. It's their greed and lust for more profits that eventually will send them to the penitentiary... Thank you, Commissioner Sullivan, for a most enlightening case. And that's the way it was. Every week on every exciting, ripped-from-the-headlines episode of Gangbusters. Thanks for joining me for some classic true crime, a little radio storytelling history on The Appleseed. <laughs> a horse race adventure ripped from the headlines of the 1940s. In an episode of The Appleseed in which we're talking about situations that don't exactly turn out how you hoped or thought they might. And we've got one more story for you today. It's about a family that assumes everyone is on the same page, but then a middle-grade novel enters their life and reveals that not everyone understood the situation as well as they all may have thought. The Appleseed is always interested in a good story. But we're also interested in what can happen when a story is released out into the world. A storyteller or author can't always predict the impact their story will have, for better or for worse, upon the people who hear it. And that's what we want to talk about right now. A story that has gone out into the world and helped families understand each other. Let's first meet the author. Hi there, my name is Elada K. Arnold. I am an author of books for and about children and teens. I write everything from picture books through Upper YA. And um, one of my core beliefs as a writer in my journey of making books is that children are whole people and they deserve great art. And I'm probably best known for the book we're going to discuss today, uh, A Boy Called Bat and its sequels. That book, A Boy Called Bat, is the story that we want to talk about for a moment. It's about, well, it's a boy who goes by the nickname Bat. And he has a lot of experiences that are common to a lot of kids in elementary school. He's in third grade. He's got an older sister named Janie who often annoys him. He has a deep desire for friendship with his peers. But something that makes Bat fairly unique in children's literature is that he is on the autism spectrum. Now, the book is written from Bat's perspective, and it allows us to see the world the way he experiences it, which can be a new experience for kids who are not on the spectrum. It's important to me that A Boy Called Bat is, you know, a window book for kids who are neurotypical to see, you know, people that they love or people they don't love <laughs> in their classroom. The first book in the Boy Called Bat series was published in 2017. And in the years since then, the author says she still receives a few emails every week from teachers, parents, and kids themselves to thank her for putting down Bat's tale in a book. And she has some remarkable memories about the way the story has helped both children and adults open up conversations about autism. Uh, one of the stories that really spoke to me was there was a, a teacher who wrote to me and told me that she had chosen to share a boy called Bat as a one as a classroom read aloud. Um, and uh, one of the kids in the class was diagnosed with autism, but he didn't know it. The teacher knew it and the parents know it, knew it, but they hadn't disclosed it to their son. And after she finished reading the book, uh, 
the kid went up to the teacher and asked if he could borrow the book and take it home. And when he did, he took it home and he gave it to his parents. And he said, here, this is me. Like this, this is my brain. This is how I think. Now that's an example of a child with autism learning more about himself. But Elana says that she has heard from many parents telling her that this book has helped build bridges between their autistic and neurotypical children. In fact, it was a story like that that first brought a boy called Bat to our attention here on The Appleseed. Our producer, Brian Tanner, read the book with his daughter and decided to share it with his sister, Amy, who has a son with autism. We brought Amy into the studio along with her kids, Jack. Oh, are we? Wait, hold on. Is it like doing it right now? <laughs> Jack is 11 and on the autism spectrum. And Claire. Uh, uh, aren't you guys recording it like later? I'm not going to actually be on it. <laughs> Claire is eight. And they all came to talk about their experiences reading the book. I decided at first to not really explain what it was. We just started to read it. And once we got into the story and I could see what it was and that it was a helpful tool, I started to say, okay, did you guys know that this boy has autism? And so then we started to point out things about autism um, that were we were seeing in the book. Now, Amy and her family had been talking openly about autism in their house long before a boy called Bat came into their lives. It's something they've talked about around the dinner table, on social media, and even on a blog that Amy started to help other parents of children with autism. Now, Claire had been present as the family talked about Jack and autism, but as the youngest child, her experience was different than that of her older siblings. She has grown up with Jack, and she knows, you know, who he is. She, um, His older siblings kind of saw the questioning, like what is going on with him and, and the testing and then the diagnosis and stuff. But for Claire, she just knows him as he is. So they're reading along in the book, and they see that the main character, Bat flaps his arms when he's excited and also that he's very particular about what kind of yogurt he likes. And he has an impressive amount of knowledge about animals, just like his mom. One day, a mom says, like, mom, who, whose job is a veterinarian, um, came home with the with a baby skunk. And then Bat suddenly was like, what's this? Okay, now this is happening. Much of the book involves Bat learning how to care for the baby skunk and developing a strong bond with it. And Jack and Claire are invested in the story, and it gives them ample opportunities to talk about autism. A little ways into the book, I was driving with Claire, my 8-year-old. I think she was 7 then. And I said, hey, do you remember Jack's old school... It's for kids with autism. And she stopped and she said, wait, Jack has autism? Like uh. bat? And I said, yeah, he does. Like mm. bat. And I hadn't realized, like we use the word autism all the time, but we had never like explicitly said to her, your brother has autism and this is what it means. So Amy has this kind of potent experience with the book, she realizes something about Claire that she had not imagined. I didn't realize that she didn't know. That was an eye-opening experience for Amy. She had assumed that little Claire knew what everyone else in the family knew because they talked about it so frequently as a family. But it hadn't clicked for Claire, not until she came across a story that helped her imagine what it would be like to be a child with autism. And so this book opened up this whole new conversation where she could understand it because she was seeing it through Bat's eyes and Bat's sister's eyes. So this book uh, was incredibly helpful for us to open up that conversation to really understand her brother. We asked Claire what she thought of the books and how they had helped her. These books are amazing, you know, like it makes people know how like this 
autism thing works. We told the story of how Claire had come to understand her brother Jack better through A Boy Called Bat to the author of the story, Alana K. Arnold. And she was touched. I am very, very grateful whenever anyone reaches out to me to tell me that it's uh, the book has been meaningful um, for their family. And because we knew that we were going to have a conversation with the author of A Boy Called Bat, we asked Jack if there's anything he would like to tell her if he could. And we got a kick out of Jack's response. Uh, I think we should say, like, okay, I bought I bought your hair, hair whole series. Are you happy now? <laughs> we played the audio of Jack's response for Elana K. Arnold when we spoke with her. And Elana was delighted. She had perhaps even more in her response than Jack might have hoped for. <laughs> Jack, I am happy but not satisfied. I have a number of other titles that you perhaps would enjoy as well. Uh, so, uh, yes, thank you, Jack, for buying this book. That's the response from a dedicated storyteller, one for whom the responses to stories like A Boy Called Bat make it worthwhile to start more conversations with more families and more kids about things worth talking about. Elana K. Arnold understands what you may understand too, and what the Appleseed believes with all its heart. It's something we say in just about every episode of the show, that great stories can help us make sense of the world and communicate with the people who are important to you. It's just about time for us to go, but we wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening. We love to hear from you, and some of our favorite stories come from listeners. Not long ago, the wonderful Ohio storyteller Kim Whitecamp visited us in the Appleseed studio and told a story called The Lap. You can find that episode in our archive at byuradio.org or on the BYU Radio app. The episode included a heartfelt reference to the classic song, You Are My Sunshine. And we got an email from Sherry Saltzgiver, who remembers her dad, a World War II vet, singing that song to her. And hearing the story on the Appleseed brought back for Sherry memories of her youth, memories of days, Sherry said, that I thought would never end, but of course they do, and I am now a grandmother who will sing that song to my granddaughter and tell her of how her great-grandfather used to sing the same song to me. Sherry says she listens to the show on her son's smart speaker, which is a great way to hear it. It touched our hearts to get that email, Sherry. Thanks so much. Like I said, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at theappleseed at byu.edu. Or, of course, you can leave a comment for us as a review on the podcast. We love it when you do that. It helps people find the show. It's been a pleasure to be part of this hour with you on The Appleseed, where great stories can change your family's world. And, of course, we hope that something from these tales today can spark feelings and memories for you that you can share with the people that you love around the kitchen table or the living room. That kind of storytelling can make for memories that last a lifetime. Again, you can find this episode or any episode from our archive on the BYU Radio app or at byuradio.org slash Appleseed or by Googling the Appleseed podcast. I'm Sam Payne, and I can't wait to be with you again on the Appleseed. Appleseed.